struggle to rebuild uh, and to share resources, then it isn't so easy. So uh, I don't think we should ignore the fact that in disasters and crises, people do, even people who don't like each other, you know, neighbors who hate each other will both work to protect their each other's homes from wildfires, let's say. But that's a thin reed on which to lean for a long-term policy planning perspective. So human beings have a nature that we can't just ignore it, but that nature is also wide, variable, and plastic. It can change over time. And so Wes and I are not, I think, overly optimistic, but are simply arguing for, first of all, confronting certain realities that are harsh. In the book, we talk about the four hard questions. What is the sustainable size of the human population? What is the appropriate scale of a political organization? You know, it isn't 330 million people in the United States trying to to live together doesn't work so well. What is the scale or the scope of human competence to manage all this technology? Well, it's not as much as we thought. And the fourth one, what is the speed at which we must change to produce a just and sustainable future? And it's a speed probably faster than we're capable of going at, as you point out. Those are hard questions. I don't like the answers to any of them, but ignoring the questions doesn't mean you get to ignore the consequences of these processes. So that's what we're trying to do. And then, you know, Wes, especially as someone who lived through the depression, he's a farm boy, he's lived in a low energy world, has direct experience with how that can happen, just as many people do, indigenous cultures do, uh, the Amish, you know, people who've made the choice to live with less. We can learn something from all of those cultures and all those experiences, but we can't pretend that they provide an easy answer. And that's, um, I guess, the simple claim of the book is to look at hard things, even when there are no easy answers, maybe even when there are no answers at all. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Again, that's the voice of our guest today, Robert Jensen, Emeritus Professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin and a founding board member of the Third Coast Activist Resource Center. We've been discussing his new book, which he co-authored with Wes Jackson, entitled an inconvenient apocalypse. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Robert Jensen, on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thanks, Kevin. And you're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM on the radio. Your spot for Cajun and Zydeco music. Bon ton roulé. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo. She is an award-winning media literacy educator, innovator, and strategist, and she's the founder of InsidersEducation.com, which helps people learn from media and one another. She has taught thousands of teachers, students, childcare professionals, media professionals, parents and guardians, as well as healthcare providers to understand and harness the power of media. 
Dr. Rogo was the founding president of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, which is where our paths crossed many years ago. She is the author of several books, but her most recent, and the one we'll be talking about today, is titled Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates. It was published by the National Association for the Education of Young Children in 2022. Dr. Rogo earned a Ph.D. and Master's in History from Binghamton University in New York and a B.A. from Indiana University. Welcome, Dr. Rogo. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Well, I think that we have both used media literacy education in our focus of work. And they're different, but there always seems to be an application for it. I wonder if we can start out with a definition of media literacy. What is media literacy education? So what I like to do is talk about the purpose. What's the goal? Because we can throw around these words that are definition. It's to teach people to analyze and evaluate and you know media, and then people don't really know what that means. So here's what it means. We want people to develop habits of inquiry related to the media that they use, and we want them to be able to communicate with the media tools we have available to us today. So it's habits of inquiry, and we call it skills of expression. So doing that is what media literacy is all about. It's in many ways, for me, very much like what we think of as being literate in the world, except it's more than just reading print. It's also being able to take in all the things that our media commonly feed us today, which includes images and sounds, as well as print. So we still have to learn how to read and write with words <laughs> and text, but we also need to learn how to read and write with images and sounds. Exactly. I became interested in media literacy, and what really led me to the first media literacy conference was I was involved in public health and looking at tobacco use, alcohol use, fast food consumption, and weight and health in children. And that led me to wonder about the power of media messages in influencing children's choices, as well as adults. I think we tend to think that we're immune to the power of media, but really we're all susceptible and vulnerable, even those of us who have had media literacy training. What do you think about that? Right. So everyone thinks, oh, well, I'm not influenced by that deceptive media over there. It's only those other people I'm worried about, <laughs> right? Right. But the truth is, the more media literate you are, the less likely it is that you will be subject to some of the powers of media. But there are a few things to know about media that make it clear that all of us have certain kinds of things that we can't escape. And one of the things is that it has an influence on our society and on our culture. And so just if you live in this world, you are being influenced by media right now without you necessarily even thinking about it. It's also, I think, people get into their heads of, it's this very one-way thing, media is just talking to me, and or talking to its users, or, or sending messages one way, and all of media is an interaction. So it isn't just one way. Media are not all powerful. They are powerful, but they are not all powerful. And it's the interaction. So. We want to make the interaction where we bring to it more consciousness because a lot of the people who make media, especially who are using media to make money, want us not to be thinking when we approach media. And that's where, in the work that you're doing or have done with, say, kids and obesity or you know things like that, where the way that we're sold so many foods that aren't good for us is reliant on a certain use of media where they're depending on users not to be thinking consciously about the messages that they're sending. And media literacy kind of does the polar opposite. It says, no, actually, we're going to help you think about it. And if we do it well, it'll be very much like learning to read print. So, you know, when you learn to read print, your brain can never go back and look at printed text without seeing words you can't, right? Your brain wants to make meaning, and if it knows how to make meaning of the symbols that are text, then it makes meaning from that. So 
part of my goal is to say, I want media literacy to become kind of so ingrained in people's brains that they're thinking about the media they encounter automatically. That's wonderful and so sorely needed now. You know, when I look back, I was focused on children's health, and I remember looking at advertisements in magazines of young people drinking alcohol. And I remember one of the points that I learned in media literacy education was that you will never see an advertisement for alcohol where people are drinking alone. It's always framed with, you want to have more friends, you want to have more fun. The way to do it is with alcohol. And those words were never stated on the page. It was done through image. Right. Images are powerful and one of the most powerful ways to communicate. And we often remember them more than we do reading print or hearing, even hearing people, say, give a lecture. But we spend almost no time in schools today teaching people how to read images. And in the digital world especially, that just doesn't make much sense to me, which is why I've been dedicated to doing media literacy education for the past 30-some-odd years. Right. You know, you've got a wonderful website, and it's for our listeners, it's www.insiterseducation.com, and I'll provide a link in the show notes. But you've got a quote from Hannah Arendt, and it says, if everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that no one believes anything any longer. Why did you choose that quote? Because... I think too often we get focused on the narrow thing. Oh, if I can just teach somebody to fact check that story, they'll see that that story isn't true. And they lose the bigger picture of when you're inundated with things that aren't true all the time, we begin to lose a sense of trust. And ultimately, that sense of trust is one of the things that must exist for kind of societal coherence, that we begin to break apart if we can't, if we think we can't trust anything. And it goes, you know, in recent political years, we've had lots of misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns and things, but there are also more subtle forces at work we in the United States have had a doctrine, a legal doctrine, called caveat emptor for a long time. And caveat emptor means buyer beware. And on the one hand, you want to say to people, yeah, don't be an idiot about things. If things are way too good to be true, they aren't true. And you have to take some responsibility for being that person. But on the other hand, what it's done is created a world where we accept we expect that companies who sell stuff will lie to us. And that can't be acceptable. That the default is, yeah, I, I don't believe they're ever going to tell me the truth about their product. So there's that line between, are they going to make it look good? Sure, they should make it look good. It's their product, right? But we so mistrust it doesn't have to exist. And once you do that, then the people who do have accurate information especially accurate health information, well, we say, but why should we trust them? We don't trust anybody. Right. And so that's why I have the quote from Hannah Arendt on the site, because I think it's so core to media literacy, because a big part of media literacy is who do we find credible and how do we know? How do we find credible sources? How do we determine what criteria do we use? And that is such a critical issue for our time. I mean, we certainly saw that with, and we are continue to see it with COVID. It's been so interesting to watch the language around climate change and how we've tried to express that it's real. And we're witnessing changes, but there are so many excuses for what we're witnessing. And so there again, I think those of us who work in science have such a hard time with this because we are so fact-based. It's like, no, 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 let us give you the facts. Right. And then when people don't want to accept those facts, we just don't know what to do with ourselves. You know, I think that science and media literacy have so much in common, and it becomes so clear 
when you're looking at how you teach this to younger children because we go back to some of the core skills and it's well how do we do careful observations of things and make note of what we see and attend to what we're we're seeing and so that's a big part of teaching science is this whole careful observation and then the other part is and we connect our conclusions to specific evidence now imagine if that was a habit from the time you were in preschool all the way on and that everybody had a standard of logic and reason that no matter what else you believe no matter what else happened in your community that was kind of a standard on which you functioned and we agreed on certain types of trusted sources that would change the game how misinformation or disinformation about things like climate could get out there. Hence your focus on young children. Yes. I think this is one of those lifelong skills. And I think the the message too often for adults has been, well, just pay attention to screen time, right? If we just count the screen time and make sure they're not in front of screens too much, it'll all be all right. And I think, you know, maybe I was never really fond of that argument, but maybe it kind of made some sense when mostly the only thing that children were accessing was television. It's certainly not true now. It's not true in part because what's much more important than the time you spend with a screen is what you're actually doing with that screen, what the content is, what your action is in relationship to the screen. But also because if the message is, well, just make sure that your kid isn't exposed to too much media, then what you're not doing is teaching any skills, right? You're not preparing children to be active and engaged and thoughtful and mindful in this media world that they're growing up into. Right. Dr. Rogo, let me take one break because we're halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Faith Rogo. She is an award-winning media literacy educator. She's an innovator and strategist. She's the founder of InsightersEducation.com, which helps people learn from media and one another. She is also the author of a terrific new book titled Media Literacy for young children teaching beyond the screen time debates, which is what you just touched on. I need to be fair, though, to our listeners and say that despite the title, it sounds like it's for teachers only. But if you consider the fact that we are all teachers of children, whether we're parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers in a classroom, in daycare, whatever, if we have any influence in a child's life or want to, then I think this book is critical reading. How would you describe who this book was designed for as you were writing it in your mind? Who were you speaking to? So I really wanted to do something that was for specifically for early childhood educators. And part of the reason was because in early childhood education, it is often still the norm to say, well, screens interfere with appropriate development in young children, and so we just shouldn't use them at all. And in fact, we hear, I hear very often the kind of what sounds to me like an old canard of, well, because they watch so much at home, we shouldn't have it here. And to me, it was always the exact opposite. It's in their lives, therefore, as educators, it's our responsibility to help them navigate it all better, right? If it's not in their lives, then we don't have to worry about it. But the idea that it would be in their lives and in their lives in a major way, and that would be a reason that educators wouldn't deal with it, never made any sense to me. So there was no resource specifically for early childhood educators. So that's who I was kind of thinking of, and a lot of the specific activity ideas that are in the book are intended for people who are working in educational settings with very young children. But that said, one of the things that I found as I was writing it is, of course, 
you know, no one's ever given media literacy education to these adults who are working with children, to these professionals. And so the probably almost the whole first half of the book is really written for adults in kind of the key concepts and ideas about media that are important to know because it's really hard to teach something that you don't understand yourself and that you don't have experience with yourself. So step one of becoming a media literacy educator, whether you're a formal educator or an informal educator, like you were saying, you know, parents, anyone, grandparents, anyone who spends time with children, step one has to be you have to understand what these concepts are so you get the end goal of what it is we're trying to accomplish with the activities that we suggest. And you've got great activities in here. And if we have time at the end, maybe we can dive into some. But I need to bring forth something that your comments just reminded me of. And that is a statement that you have on your website where you're helping people understand, well, why media literacy? And you say, because an informed citizenry is essential for a healthy democracy and planet And that is what makes it essential. So I think that in these times, you know, back decades ago when I went to my first media literacy conference, there was a lot of emphasis placed on television screens and helping kids interpret. And when we're sitting together and watching the screen together, things that we can interject to help children think more critically. And then fast forward to today, and we have all kinds of screens and apps where children are really faced one-on-one with the communicator behind that screen. So in my mind, media literacy education has become ever more important. Well, I'll never disagree with anyone who says media literacy education is important. I think it's critically important. I think it's as important as we used to think of literacy as being, that you know it's essential to become a functioning person in the world. I think media literacy is that now, that you can't really be truly powerfully literate without being media literate in today's world. And I also think that one of the responses has been, well, okay, we'll just kind of shut it off. I don't want my child to be exposed to that media, and so I won't use screens. I won't give them a tablet. I won't let them use my phone, you know, those kinds of things. Except, again, that doesn't give kids skills, and it doesn't help us make sure that media are responsible and do their jobs and function at least somewhat in the public interest and not just in advertisers' interests. So one of the things that I've begun saying is media literacy only has to be part of the answer to our current woes in society if we don't care about democracy. If we value democracy, then we can't censor how people use media. We can a little bit. I mean, there are functioning democracies that have figured out that there are certain limits to free speech, and they've begun to figure out or were in the process of figuring out how to apply that to the digital world. But we can't just say, oh, they don't get to talk. And that means we have to educate the users. There is no other choice there. So if we value democracy, media literacy has to be part of the picture. So let's compare decades ago and the focus that you had on media and compare that to today. What do you see as some of the most challenging areas in the media that children are exposed to today, as well as adults? But we'll keep our focus on children. Well, I think they're actually interrelated. I think one of the things is the mobility and so you do have more screens in more places now and that can lead to certain kinds of things where and the reason i say it's interrelated is because it's it changes interactions with grown-ups and the reason that that's important for young children is that young children are watching adults in their lives not just for kind of specific lessons but Generally, how am I supposed to interact with the world? If they're looking down at a screen instead of up at the adults in their lives, then the kind of mirror that they're looking at for, well, how am I supposed to be in the world? Who am I? Is a mirror that generally is controlled 
by people who don't have their best interests at heart. They may be great storytellers and can be really fun, and there is a, a role for entertainment. There's nothing wrong with media entertainment as long as it reflects a parent's values or a school's values. But we do have to be careful that we don't go overboard in saying, well, okay, it's easy to, say, use a screen in a restaurant and kids will stay quiet and well-behaved and they'll just be looking down at the screen. But then they're missing the conversation that adults are having, how they interact with the wait staff, how they think about what they're going to order, you know, all of those kinds of things that you think of, well, that's no big deal. But it's part of the social fabric. And I, I think that's one of the things we need to pay attention to. I also think it's very important for adults to pay attention to what they're doing with screens that changes the world for children. So it's not just, well, what's on that screen that the child is watching? It's probably a YouTube video. It's, you know, in many cases, actually, there's so much more actual educational media out there. There's a lot of stuff that's labeled educational media that is not educational. But there's a lot of great stuff out there, actually, for young children these days. But we've changed our patterns. And so if adults are using their screens, you know, where children used to hear conversations, even if it was one-sided conversations on the phone, now that same adult is on Facebook talking to their friends, and children aren't hearing anything. They just don't hear those conversations anymore. Right. And that affects language development, and it affects socialization. So I think adults need to ponder what their own relationship is to screens and what children are missing out. And the message is not, oh, therefore screens are bad and we need to stop being on social media and we need to... No, it's to say, let's think about what children need. And we live in a digital world. Let's think about how they're going to get it. Well, you, of course, were one of the key developers for the key media literacy questions that I carry around with me. And you've got on page 56 of this excellent book, the key categories of media literacy analysis and sample questions. And I love the way you start out the list. You say, I wonder. And I love that way of being with anyone just to have a conversation with a child or a fellow adult to say, you know, I wonder about. And I thought that maybe we could go through some of the questions that sure. help make us be more critical thinkers and media literate. Do you want to go through some of your favorite questions and maybe apply them in a situation? Sure. So one of the questions under the category of responses, for instance, is about how this makes me feel, mm. but also the one beneath it or the, the next two beneath it. So now that I know this, what do I want to do? Or what can we do to change the story? We can teach kids to ask questions, and this is where the habits come in. It's not that you would use questions in this specific wording. It's categories of questions. So we have a category that's called responses. And we can instill a habit to say, every time I approach media, I have these questions in my head and I know I can interact and I know that I don't just have to accept at face value what this story is telling me. I can ask questions about it. So that would be one. I think the, the questions like, I mean, some of the questions are obvious. So it would be, I wonder, well, who's telling this story? Why are they telling this particular story? What does this want me to do? Those kinds of questions tend to be the basic ones. But I also think that there are questions about, say, interpretations and effects, like who might be sad or happy because of this? Or why do they think this is important? Do I think this is important? Or even thinking, you know, what would somebody I know think about this? So what would... Ultimately, we want a parent's or family's value voice in the child's head. If mom or dad or grandma or my auntie or whoever it is, if they knew I was watching this, what would they think? Would they think this is funny? Would they be sad by this? And why? Because that, and, and if they're asking those questions, then even as a parent, if you're not with them every second, 
you know that they have your values inside their head. Mm-hmm. And that's the lens that they're interpreting through. This is such a treasure trove of help in terms of teaching children how to expand their world and their imagination of what could be. And I think one of the reviewers of your book actually prided you in your ability to ask that question about imagination and instilling imagination and creativity in children. And I just really commend you for this. We just have a minute left. And so I want to leave that open to you to leave our listeners with any last thoughts that you might have. I think when we're looking at media literacy, think of it in some ways, if you've ever sat with a young child and read a book with them, what a joyous experience that can be. And I want to see us develop a media literacy that doesn't come out of our anxieties. It's an answer to our, some of our anxieties, but it doesn't come out of our anxieties. It comes out of our joy because this is a world of inquiry. It's like science. Science can answer some of our anxieties, but it also can be this incredible font of discovery and exploration and a wonderful way to think about being in the world. And that's where I want media literacy to go. Well, I want to thank you for your decades of work and especially for this excellent book. We are out of time, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Helmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo. She is an award-winning media literacy educator, innovator, and strategist. She is the founder of InsightersEducation.com. And as someone who has worked in promoting public health and protecting our environment for decades, I think that this book, Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Scream Time Debates, applies to every single subject matter I can think of. So thank you again, Dr. Rogo, for this incredibly important work. Thanks. A pleasure to be with you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. David Wiss. He is a Los Angeles-based award-winning fellow registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition and mental health. His website, wisemindnutrition.com, features information on nutrition as it applies to adverse child experiences, disordered eating, food addiction, depression, trauma-informed care, resilience in recovery, and much more. In 2013, Dr. Wiss founded Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice of dietitians who specialize in the treatment of eating and substance use disorders. Dr. Wiss received his bachelor's in social science from the University of Southern California, a master's in nutrition, dietetics, and food science at California State University at Northridge, and he completed his dietetic internship at UCLA, where he received specialized training on their eating disorders unit. In 2022, he received his PhD at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health, where he broadened his education to include health psychology, and he investigated the links between adverse childhood experiences and various mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Welcome, Dr. Wiss. Oh, I'm so privileged to be here. You've had such a great impact on my field, our field, and my career. Thank you for carrying the torch and talking about such important issues for so many years. Well, thank you. I think that your specialized area of expertise could not be more necessary now. These are such dark times for so many of us. We've been disconnected because of the pandemic. We are so divided as a society. We see the statistics on childhood mental health and they are depressing. So. I think as a society, we are suffering. And nutrition, of course, we both look at food as medicine. And I don't think that food has been emphasized enough in its healing power. So I am thrilled to bring your voice to our listeners. I wanna know how you became interested in looking at mental health and its connection to nutrition. 
Yeah, great question. I think I'll, I'll start off by saying that with a lot of the darkness and the difficulties in the world comes a lot of shifts and there's definitely paradigm shifts happening with respect to social justice, how we view food and how we view nutrition. So amidst the current crises, I think there's a lot of hope for awakenings on the horizon. Me personally, I have a personal journey that I get to tell a lot and it seems people ask me about it often. I can say that I grew up in Los Angeles. I definitely come from a genetic legacy of alcoholism and chronic disease. So I had my fair share of health challenges, including mental health challenges, substance use disorder. And I had a revolution in my health and in my life in 2006, when I was able to find uh, what we call recovery. And I used nutrition as a big part of my awakening and my entry into a new chapter. Nutrition changed, not just the way that I looked, but the way that I felt and the way that I navigated the world, it impacted my relational health, my ability to feel like I could stand in my own branded dignity. And it changed my energy and my vibrations in a way that absolutely pointed me toward my career and future direction. So I ended up doing a master's degree in nutrition, focusing on nutrition for substance use and got into food addiction and eating disorders got really into advocacy, which is where I learned about your work and looking at things in a larger global context, considering food environments and contextual factors that impact eating behavior and access to food. And then the world of the gut microbiota started to emerge on the scene, which really substantiated the conversation around nutrition for mental health. And I can say that Sometimes nutrition gets a really bad rap because most people think about it in a quantitative way. It's just about calories and macronutrients and fitness and, and weight loss. And, you know, when I spoke of this paradigm shift, this awakening that's happening, I think people are starting to understand the healing properties of food, food as a interaction with the ecosystem that lives in our gastrointestinal tract and really starting to think about food as a profound interaction with nature on a daily basis, as opposed to something quantitative, starting to think about it more qualitatively, which really opens up the conversation around nutrition for mental health, going beyond just addictions and substance use disorders and eating disorders and thinking about the role of nutrition in depressive symptoms, anxiety, trauma, and the rest. It's funny that you mentioned how we've been thinking about nutrition all these years and the journey that we've all taken and how we look at it. The last time we got together professionally in person was in Philadelphia and you gave a special presentation for dietitians in integrative and functional medicine. And I have my notes from that talk. But you talked about how if you're gonna count anything, we don't wanna be counting calories and grams of this and grams of that. But you said, if you're gonna count anything, count fiber, why? Oh. That's one of my favorites. Thank you for that question. I think the public health data that we have suggests that the average intake in terms of grams of fiber is less than half of what it should be for optimal gut health, which we know is linked to brain health. So when I say out with the quantitative approaches to nutrition, it leaves a little bit of room for people to have some quantitative targets with respect to fiber. And I think the food industry learned that people were searching for higher fiber intakes as the data started to emerge about gut bacteria harvesting this and creating other postbiotics like short chain fatty acids, et cetera. And they started supplementing food with fiber supplements and people started reaching for the fiber one bars and the enhanced cereals. And I think it's so important to teach people to get fiber from real food, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, because there is a synergy between the fiber that's in food and the polyphenols that are in plant foods and the vitamins and minerals that you can't recreate through supplements. So one of the most important things we do in the domain of nutrition for mental health is try to get people to be more fiber friendly, slowly increase the grams of fiber without necessarily needing to count them and get someone really above that 30 grams of fiber per day. 
everyone's different. So recommendations are going to vary. Some people do very well on a much lower amount and other people can get as, as much as twice that much. So I think if there was one nutrition intervention that could warrant very specific and deliberate quantitative approaches, it would be getting those grams of fiber up and putting a emphasis on soluble fiber, such as those that come in beans and oats and other plant foods. Yeah. And didn't I see a statistic lately reported that about 70% of our nation's calories come in the form of highly processed food? And when I say highly processed, I mean really low in fiber. Yeah, I think that would be the real detriment of ultra processed food. Uh, A lot of times people like to identify sugar, salts, and fats, and some of the added ingredients as the main problem of ultra processed food. But as you pointed out, I think we also need to think about what's been removed. So when food is processed, oftentimes it is the fiber that's removed. A lot of really sensitive phytonutrients are lost during processing. So ultra processed food isn't just about adding nutrients that make it more palatable, but also all the things that have been lost. And I think that's a really important question. What is missing in these Mm -hmm. foods? Well, if people want to learn more about this particular topic, they can go to wisemindnutrition.com where you have a host of articles on this and many other topics. But I wanna bring something forth that relates to your work. And it has to do with individuals with mental health challenges. We're happy to talk about broken bones or physical impairments, but mental health is something that we don't feel comfortable as a culture addressing. Mm. And what we've done as a society is rather than having compassionate institutions where people with mental health challenges might be cared for, we have seen that we've been putting people with mental health challenges into jails and prisons. Mm. And I had a chance to look at prison and jail menus recently. And when I look at your recommendations for improving mental health, I don't see any of them present in the institutions that we have today that are housing individuals with mental health challenges. Mm. Thank you for pointing that out. I remember in 2011, there was a paper that came out, I believe it was in the UK that showed supplementation with omega-3 in the form of fish oil reduced aggression on prison yards. And I remember seeing that paper and thinking, wow, this is a huge finding. I wonder what's gonna happen as a result of these conclusions. And lo and behold, I don't believe anything changed anywhere. So I like to be a very positive thinker with respect to nutrition, but I also think it's wise to point out that nutrition is one of the major unspoken tools of oppression in our society. And it's definitely a way that oppressed groups are continued to become oppressed and stay marginalized in the prison population. The uh, population of those with substance use disorders are all perfect examples. I do want to acknowledge that institutional food service is a challenging thing. And so I've definitely worked in some settings where I learned about the difficulties with serving food to lots of people at one time. So I want to be sensitive to those needs while also recognizing that we could do much better. Absolutely. And I think we are starting to see institutions like there are some hospitals, for example, that have farms on site where patients are able to get the benefits of truly fresh foods. So more of that, please, as we move forward and how we can change the world for better. Mm. I want to bring something forth. You have looked at trauma-related care and experiencing trauma and you have a section on your website that looks at food insecurity and i remember learning how food insecurity in itself is a form of trauma do you Mm. want to talk about that at all yeah thank you it's such an important question there's been a lot of emphasis on adverse childhood experiences what people call aces and i think that the original ace study was very limited in the fact that it looked at adverse childhood experiences in the household, specifically those that fall under the domain of child maltreatment, so abuse and neglect, as well as those that fall under the domain of household dysfunction, parent uh, living with mental illness, using drugs, going to jail or prison, and parents being separated. 
And it took many years for investigators and trauma researchers to understand the importance of looking at that, not just at the household level, but in the community. So we call these expanded ACEs, thinking about people that were exposed to community violence, bullying, uh, the experience of discrimination based on race, gender, et cetera. And there's a lot of other adverse childhood experiences that can happen in the local community rather than just the household. But then more recently, we've thought about, well, what about other adverse childhood experiences that occur in the household, like adverse food-related experiences? So there's definitely dynamics in certain families where food is used as reward, as punishment, or there is insufficient food, food insecurity, maybe there's shame about using food assistance. And I think that the world of adverse food-related experiences is gonna open up a lot of good research questions, particularly in the domain of eating disorders. And so I do wanna recognize that the original ACE research did recognize potential food insecurity, having un stable sources of food, clothes, et cetera. But looking at food insecurity as a form of trauma in the early life that can affect not only mental health outcomes, but one's relationship to food is super, super important. We have some data to show links between food insecurity and eating disorders, as well as food insecurity and what we call food addiction. Yeah. David, we've got to take a break because we're halfway through and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. David Wiss. He is based in Los Angeles, but his work is nationwide. He's an award-winning registered dietitian. His specialty is nutrition and mental health. I wanted to get back to something that you said about adverse food-related experiences and how they can have a long-term impact. And so much of what we hear, the language that is used, is that if you're overweight, for example, obesity is related many times to adverse childhood experiences. But if a person presents as being obese, many times, even in the healthcare setting, we'll hear people say, well, it's just because you're making poor choices. You know, it's this personal problem that you have. But I think you do a beautiful job in recognizing the role of the biopsychosocial model of health and disease. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, it's a beautiful framework that was introduced in the late 70s and early 80s by Dr. Engel. And it's a way of thinking in terms of systems. So in the medical model, there's an emphasis on biology, the sort of biomedical reductionistic model. And I think a lot of people are aware that that lacks a lot of really important context in that just looking at things in a purely biological context is very much missing the larger and important picture. So introducing the psychosocial components includes the psychology of health, the way people experience meeting with their provider, the way people think about themselves in the context of society. And of course, there's a whole field of health psychology, especially with the context of eating. We think about the experience of weight stigma, the experience of dieting or restrained eating. And then in public health, what we do is put everything into social context. So this is when you consider environmental factors. So if you were to take a condition such as trauma, you would start to think about the biological embedding of adversity. So the specific pathways in which childhood adversity can alter one's physiology. You would start to think about the psychological impact, the way someone ascribes meaning, the subjective experience, the way someone made sense out of that, um, the different thought processes that emerge through the trauma. And then you put it into social context and think about how it can impact relational health, how it can affect someone's ability to form social ties and be a part of a community. And so the biopsychosocial model is truly a multidisciplinary effort to merge these different academic disciplines that are often siloed 
and bring them all together and, and use larger conceptual frameworks. And it's been utilized in psychiatry and in mental health and certainly in academic disciplines like public health and sometimes in epidemiology, et cetera. And it's a just a powerful way of thinking about things more broadly and not being limited to one particular point of view. If you think about microbiologists or molecular scientists, they're seeing the world through the lens of mechanisms. And then we have psychologists who think about the mind rather than the brain and then sociologists. And like, what if everyone could get together and start thinking about these things systematically? I think we'd make a lot of progress with conditions like eating disorders, addictions, the experience of living in a larger body and so many more conditions. So it really is about collaborative efforts to understand health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And compassion and mm. having having a sense of caring for our fellow human beings yes. would be a nice start. I've often thought that of all my years of practice, what people are hungriest for are connections. And I truly believe that community, that sense of community, that sense of belonging, being accepted however we are, and being loved is really at the core of so many other problems. I couldn't agree more. I think that we're in an era of disconnection. We've got this technology that's creating connections in some ways and disconnections in others. And, you know, I've done some research on drug use. And one of the major findings that we discovered is that those who have higher levels of social support have less drug use. And I think when people get into recovery, whatever that means, whether it's trauma, uh, eating disorders, addictions, is being around like-minded individuals, perceiving that those people are helpful is such an important part of any reintegration process. And I've always made the argument that the farmer's market and the co-op, I go to a co-op here in Santa Monica, I'm in West Los Angeles, these are important places to visit because these are places that are in the community. And I think people are moving toward ordering food online and getting meal delivery and all these other options. And I think it's, it's just leading to an inherent lack in connectedness around food and community. I love connecting with my local grocers and asking someone to make me a juice at the, at the juice bar and saying thank you. And those little parts of the healing picture have been totally overlooked. And I just want to acknowledge you for not being someone who overlooks these things, who points to the value of real food and connection with community as an important part of the collective healing that we so desperately need in our world today. Thank you. I wonder if we can maybe get into some nitty gritty therapy. So what would it be like if I came to your office and I said, Dr. Wiss, I just feel like these days I have a lot more anxiety and depression. What would you recommend to me? Yeah, great question. I think before anyone even gets to that point uh, of seeing me in the office, I've had someone fill out a lot of forms that look at health and health behavior. So I already have some really good insight into what's going on. You know, I do practice nutrition, so I do tend to provide education related to some of these mental health outcomes, but I also recruit other experts like psychiatrists and psychologists, therapists when there's a need. But if I were to look at something like depression or anxiety, I would really consider the biopsychosocial approach, which would mean I would first think about potential biological drivers starting in the gut. I think there was this monoamine hypothesis of depression that really focused on neurotransmitter dysfunction and especially serotonin, which led to a lot of the medications that are on the market. And there's a lot of other biological causes and consequences of depression. And I think the most noteworthy one is inflammation and oxidative stress. We know that low-grade systemic inflammation that can accumulate over time has the potential to cross or disrupt the blood-brain barrier. Most people are familiar with the term leaky gut. We now have this term leaky brain to describe what happens after long-term exposure to an immune system that isn't working optimally. 
And there's a hot topic, which I've become very interested in called neuroinflammation. And this is the potential for inflammation to pass this blood brain barrier by way of microglia and other astrocytes and other mechanisms that we're learning much more about and to lead to changes in the brain. So depression also is associated with certain structural and functional brain changes, anhedonia, which is related to uh, reward and the dopamine system. And so when we were thinking about the biology, I would point to interventions that could be helpful in terms of anti-inflammatory eating, moving people toward Mediterranean style eating. Everyone's different. Some people might need to do some blood work to look at their specific potential causes of inflammation. And then again, the psychology of eating, the psychology of life. How do we bring in more joy into the process of being an eater? How do we get someone to get back in the kitchen and get excited about making food for themselves and for their people in their lives? I encourage people to get sunlight and get sleep and do the entire intervention on a entire physical dimension of wellness. And of course, thinking about social context, like what are sources of excitement and joy. And, you know, one of the biggest things I do with people, because I'll say this, nutrition education is helpful, right? You could tell someone about biological mechanisms, provide recipes. These are things I do all day long. But one of the most impactful things that I'm able to do is get people excited about going to the grocery store, cooking meals, and using it as a meditative and healing process. So most people are familiar with this domain of mindful eating. I sometimes teach people about soulful eating and getting back to nature and using meditation and using other mind-body practices like yoga to cultivate gratitude and just connect to the plants and be excited about entering a new chapter and being able to face the world. I never pretend like nutrition is a sole intervention for depressive symptoms. But I can say that this year, we have a systematic review that was published by O'Neill and colleagues in the Nutrients Journal, which looked at all of the randomized control trials of dietary interventions on depression. And these were studies that used food, not supplements, but used food to improve symptoms of depression without being focused on any weight related outcome. So this is just singing my song, right? This particular paper looked at all seven randomized control trials and guess what was found? All seven of them showed significant improvements in depressive symptoms. So there are people that have depression with other etiology. Perhaps it is more based in the neurochemistry related to serotonin and people respond well to those medications, particularly the SSRIs. But there's a lot of people who don't respond well to SSRIs and need to think about nutrition, exercise, and other forms of wellness. And I think nutrition is gonna get a lot of spotlight now that we have accumulating evidence to show that dietary interventions can actually be helpful. But my fear is that it'll be much like our earlier discussion where we get a finding, we know something helps, but it just doesn't fit well into the medical model and it falls under the wayside. So I would like to recruit other people who are willing to have these conversations. There's a growing field called nutritional psychiatry. Interestingly, uh, but not surprisingly, these scholars are much more prevalent in countries outside of the US. So we need some vocal leaders here in the US to start talking about the links between nutrition and mental health. Well, we're running out of time, but I have to just bring forth something that you said again in Philadelphia that connects everything that you've been talking about. And it has to do with changing the way we teach about food education. And you called for culinary literacy with an emphasis on hands-on nutrition, in other words, cooking. And you've got a great feature on your Wise Mind Nutrition website and it's anti-inflammatory herbs and spices. And I dove right into that article and I thought, I want to see what herbs and spices you're recommending and how I can incorporate more of those into my diet. So again, that website is www.wisemindnutrition.com. I will provide a link to that. David, in wrapping up, do you want to give us one last message? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you found that page because there's a bunch of downloadable recipes there as well. So 
thank you for finding that. And I encourage all our listeners to just learn more about the link between nutrition and mental health and be a part of the collective healing. Thank you so much. We've got to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Wiss, registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition and mental health. Thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much. Somebody help me, set me free I can't take this new reality How much longer can it be? Where's the humanity? I look around and all I see Masked faces staring at me Keep your distance, don't touch me Get your hands off my TV Somebody save my sanity The COVID killer's coming after me How much longer will it be? Where's the humanity? I'm sick and tired of staying at home Even worse, I live alone Gotta get out, I need to roam You can't shake hands on the phone touch I need to feel I need to hug a friend for real I'm not down for this new deal I'm not down for this new deal the COVID killer keeps piling it on Counting the dead goes on and on We gotta stay safe, gotta be strong Ride this out no matter how long